Welcome to the official Faster podcast. What do Salesforce, Moz, and HubSpot have in common? They use calculators, graders, and quizzes to attract relevant users to their website and turn them into paying customers. Find out how you can build these same tools for your business at outgrow.co forward slash SaaS. That is outgrow.co forward slash S-A-A-S. In today's Sasser Insider, we have part one of the 10 mistakes the CEO of Zoom Info made on his journey to IPO with Henry Shuck, CEO at Zoom Info, and Jason Limkin, CEO at Sasser. Every company, big and small, is realizing that high-quality data is a necessity to go to market. My name is Henry Shuck. I'm the CEO of ZoomInfo and Discover Org. There's no platform out there that's brought together the breadth, the depth, and the accuracy of business information the way that we have. Business information is constantly changing. What we've built is this core AI and machine learning engine that takes literally millions and millions of unique sources so that we can deliver 95% accuracy to our clients. We have data scientists who are embedded into our go-to-market motion. We're looking at every single metric and figuring out how do we convert that a little bit better, a little bit better, a little bit better. I really want to build a business that in every single department, whether it's sales or marketing or product development, I want every single piece of that business to be literally best in class. I think the culture of continuous improvement at our company is a big part of our success. We're just going to grind this thing out. We're going to work harder. We're going to care more. You have to be paranoid when it's good because I want to make sure that it's repeatable. I want to make sure that if there's something that we did last week that made it the best week ever, that we keep on doing it. Whose idea was it to IPO in the middle of a pandemic anyways? <laughs> it's not a celebration. It's really just a launching point for the next thing. All right. Sometimes on these digital things, the crowd can be a little quiet, but let's all give it up for, for Henry Shuck from Zoom Info. It's great to have him here. Um, and uh, Henry, thanks. thank you so much for making the time and joining us. Absolutely. You can, I, we can just sit here and watch that movie on loop if you'd like. It was pretty good. I did <laughs> notice you're a little fitter now than you were for a brief moment in that journey. I hadn't noticed that before. Is that fair to say? Uh, uh, I was more, I was more, I'm more fit now or during the journey? Now, now. Um, maybe. It might just be the camera angle. Might just be the camera angle. Yeah. I, it's funny. I've learned over the years, it's subtle, but if you see a CEO, a founder that you know, and you see them get fitter, it's a good sign. Like invest, like do whatever you can when they go, because it's a good, it's, it's, a, it's a tell, right? So when they start looking good. I had somebody tell me once, I, I, sometimes I feel guilty if I take time away from work to work out. And yeah. I had somebody tell me like, but you've, they said, Henry, you've told me that when you work out, you're more productive at work. You're a better version of yourself at work. And so why are you not just thinking about that as an investment into your productivity at work? Yeah. And it was like, yeah, okay, I could, I could get behind that. <laughs> it's true. 
Um, so this is a, a special session. First of all, we will try to do some Q&A. So click on Q&A at the bottom. If you're watching this on Zoom rather than on social media, click in there. We'll try to get to some of these questions. And this will be a fun session um, for two reasons. First, I think as a, as a case study, ZoomInfo is a super interesting company. We've obviously all used the product. Um, and I think and I think, but when it when it yeah, IPO'd, I was shocked at the scale of the company. Right, I didn't know. There's a lot. There's a lot of vendors. I knew it had broken out, so we were shocked. And, and Henry will share some stories as we went through this, of how folks maybe underestimated him on the journey, right, and what it took for him to build a Decacorn. And it's it's so interesting to see one of these products that we know are like, oh my God, this the scale of the product and why and why did Zoom Info break out? And it is a competitive space. And how does this really work? So I think it's it's super fun. And, and Henry pointed out the company did not raise. $1,100 million rounds from Sequoia and Andreessen and had its own sort of path through private equity and other things. And, and in some ways, as a company, not a product, might have flown under the radar a little bit until it kind of exploded this year. So a lot of interesting things. And Henry asked what he could talk about at Saster, and he did us a gift, which we're going to go through, is he, he laid out his top 10 mistakes getting to the first 400 million or so in revenue. So I'm gonna ask him about these 10 mistakes. And what's great is so many of these are themes that we've all talked about in our community in Saster for years. And I think it's special to, to, have, to, to get his time to sit down quietly and write them. And it's so interesting when a CEO or founder does this because you can hear their brain and their heart. The number one mistake probably was the number one piece of scar tissue you have. <laughs> and then you can just peer, peer into their brain. So. So with that, let me kick this one off because this could mean so many things, but mistake number one, being risk averse in investment outside of sales. A lot of founders might have the opposite experience, but what does this mean? Where were you, where, where did you hold back too much? Yeah, and I think you could probably replace sales with like your area of expertise if you're a founder or a CEO. And so yeah. I felt really tied into sales. I understood how it worked. I did all of the sales for the first not all the sales, but I was on the front line doing the sales for the first five years of the company's existence. Like I was, I had a regular quota carrying sales rep on top of uh, everything else. And so I had, so every time it came to spend the next dollar, I was much more likely to spend it in sales than really anywhere else in the business. Yeah. And when I was thinking about this, this, this mistake, I was thinking about like, why was it that I, that I wanted to put all the dollars into sales and I was much less likely to put it in marketing or HR or customer success. And really, I think sales was easy for us because you could see a direct line to revenue. You put a dollar in sales, you saw yep. it turn into money. Um, and everywhere else in the business, that line was less clear. So you could put it in marketing and do you trust the reports you're getting about attribution and where the leads are coming in? You could put it in HR, but do you really believe that they're going to strategically grow your talent? And when you think about not making the investments in all of those other areas, what, what you're really telling yourself is either you don't trust the people in the department. And so you're going like, I'm not going to give that money to marketing because I just don't really trust that they're yeah. going to be able to execute with those dollars. And that, so go fix that. Don't not make the investment in marketing because you don't trust the execution of the team or the leader. Um, if you're not going to make the investment in product, you have to ask yourself, like, why would I not be making that investment in product? And it's probably because either it, you're chasing the wrong things, you don't trust the product leader, you don't think your customers are going to engage with that side of the product. And so I think on this one, um, 
we always wanted immediate payoff. And so we never looked to like, for the early portion of the business, didn't look to making investments that had long-term payoff. And a lot of that is because we didn't trust, or I didn't uh, trust the leaders in those organizations to deliver me the results that I trust the leaders in sales to deliver me. And so the learning here is if you don't trust a team and you're not making an investment in that team because you don't trust them, you have to fix the underlying issue there because these investments go a long way. Well, that's an interesting point. You took it a a slightly different place than I was expecting. I thought you were going to say, I I trusted sales. So I just put with limited capital, I put it where I knew, but you're really saying I didn't know these other areas and I'm not sure about the leaders I hired. Did you hire the wrong first generation of management team because you, you hadn't done those functional areas before or what was, why were you not able to trust them? Did you just make the classic mishires? I, I think I made the classic mishires. And then after I made the classic mishires, like if I took marketing, for example, after I made a classic mishire there, what I convinced myself of was what I was getting from them was better than what I would do myself in the limited time that I would have focused on marketing across all of the other things I was focusing on. Instead of, am I getting what I would, in just a vacuum, what I would expect from a fantastic marketing organization? And I wasn't ever getting that in the early days. What I was getting instead was something better than what I was able to do on my own. And it was just the wrong lens to look at it through. And what was the first like VP you hired outside of sales that was your aha moment that changed the game, that moved the needle? Where did, where, how, did you, how were you able to change this? What was that game-changing VP? Yeah, I, I, I hired a great sales leader, uh, revenue ops, and now he's our chief revenue officer. And what you saw when he came in, and I, you've written about this too, Jason, is the minute he came in, all of, we thought we were really good and he was <laughs> immediately making impact all over. Like, why aren't we doing this? Let's do this. And not just like, a lot of leaders can come in and just like poo-poo on everything. Ah, I can't believe you guys are doing it this way. And oh, it's an embarrassment that we're doing it this way. The great leaders go, hey, we're, we're missing this opportunity. Then they execute against that opportunity and give you results against it. And they're able to do that over and over and over and scale. And so when yeah. we hired this revenue operations leader, all of a sudden you could see like every, everything he put his hands on turned to gold. And you're like, okay, leadership can really turn around really any area of the company. Yeah. One other one on this, I want to get to mistake number two first, but when you focused on sales because of this, looking back, obviously it ended up, it's ended up being an amazing journey, but did you end up with certain types of product feature gaps and technical debt because it wasn't an area you were focused on? Did you, did you miss some investments in the product in those first couple of years because of this? Oh, yeah, totally. We missed investments in the product along the way. Um, we missed investments and in building like a great engineering team early on. And then yeah. I think maybe more so than anything, we missed investments in, on the account management and customer success side. We were so yeah. focused on the sales side that we didn't invest the same sort of vigor around talent and training and onboarding and just getting the right people and continuously giving them feedback in the account management side. And so in the early years of the company, we really struggled from a net retention um, and logo churn perspective. And that was another area where when we hired somebody good and you saw their numbers turn, yeah, it's just magic. And you actually kind of convinced yourself at some point, like my business is different. You know, my business is different. I have SMBs. My business is different. You know, data and software together are just more complicated and less sticky than 
other things. You just convince yourself of all of these. You you have this very special thing, so it can't be best in class. And that's just like not true. You just don't have the right leadership or structure to get there. Often. That's a really good insight. You you hear that a lot from data-focused companies that high churn's okay, right? You hear it from a lot of HR-focused companies that NPS is going to be low because employees hate using those tools, right? They hate doing self-assessment. They hate it. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that is true, probably true historically, right? If you went into G2 and looked, but it, it, you shouldn't settle for that, should you? you no, you, and you I bet you if that. you ask WebEx users and Citrix users how they felt about their conferencing solution, like early on, they might tell you like, oh, I hate conferencing. And I yeah. think like what you saw Zoom communications do was make that an enjoyable experience. And that was a big differentiator. You didn't have to settle for low NPS scores in video conferencing. You could be a lot better. Yeah, it's a super good insight. And um, I want to hit the next number two, but especially in data, so many folks make so many excuses, right? It's ephemeral. It's a marketing tool. Of course, it's going to churn. If if the asset doesn't perform, if the data is not great, I'll just leave and try another one, right? This isn't like Salesforce. It's not sticky, but don't. Your lesson here, I think, is a profound challenge to founders, which is don't settle. It's not okay. You can have a 30, 40, 50, 60 MPS in any field, right? Not just a... Um, okay, this one's this one this one will, will is niche, but it's interesting. Not doing mergers and acquisitions sooner. I don't know that every every founder would put this as mistake number two, but it's interesting because you put it you put it second here. Yeah, so maybe I'll I'll give a little bit of a lineage. I I bootstrapped the company with my co-founder in 2007. We put twenty five thousand dollars on our credit cards and went to market. We built a really profitable business that had high margins. And we didn't bring in our first outside capital until for seven, seven years later, the business was already at a $25 million uh, ARR run rate. And we're doing that profitably. And when you have a profitable business, you have the opportunity to do M&A and actually do that M&A with, uh, we did M&A with debt. Um, And so if you built this growing profitable business and you're able to loan against your balance sheet, to go buy, go out and acquire mm. competitors in your space or other technology tokens in your space along the way, like that is absolutely, in my opinion, a play you should run. Um, and we were always kind of late to this. For every, you know, our big acquisitions that we did along the way were a company called Brain King in 2007, uh, 2017 and Zoom Info, which we were, I founded the business as a company called Discover Org, and we changed the name to Zoom Info after that acquisition. We made that Zoom Info acquisition in 2019. And both of them, we had looks at those businesses a year or a year and a half before. And if we had done the acquisitions earlier, we would have saved, I think, $700 million in acquisition M&A costs. Um, Now, it's hard to go, oh, you know, what a mistake that was. It's a mistake in that, like, the cost of capital was higher. Things ended up working Great. Um, But part of the reasons why we didn't do that is, and I think probably a lot of founders feel this way, is when you're looking at your business that you've grown up inside of, you start to feel like um, you're just like a kid pretending in like an adult world. Like people who do M&A don't feel like 30-year-olds who started their companies and like we just didn't have the confidence that we could pull something like that off. And so yeah. we're always like a year behind getting the confidence to be able to actually do M&A successfully. 
and it just cost us money along the way. Yeah, the the first point's interesting because we we're all we're all kind of there's been a bunch of talks already at, at this event. We're all a little bit woke to the power of debt in SaaS if you do it right, right? If yep. you, you, it has to be for leverage. It can't be in lieu of equity on its own because yep. then you'll spend it and you'll get into trouble on the service, right? But yep. if you're at 25 million in ARR and it's predictable, and how much did you borrow to do the first acquisition? Uh, like 200 million. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, you did take advantage of the growth in multiples that we've had over the last few years, right? Yes, I did yeah. take advantage of the growth in multiples and, um, and we protected equity. And yeah, you protected it. equity. But you were able to somewhat confidently say, hey, I can service that debt, right? Given yes. the, re the repeatable cash flows, right? Yeah. And that's, that's something that whether it's just to take a little bit of debt to hire that extra VP of product that you wish you'd hired back in the day or whether it's to, to do something, we should all, if we have strong metrics, strong revenue retention, we should be confident to do this. It's sort of what you're saying, be confident, right? Yeah, be, be confident to do it a year early because we were gonna, you were gonna get there, right? You saw it already in the numbers at 25 million in error, you were gonna get to 100. Like the odds of going from 25 to 100 approached 100% at that point, right? It's just the resolution was unclear, right? Yeah, and if you're confident about from an M&A perspective, if you're confident that you could put two businesses together, get synergies out of it, grow them faster, make them more efficient in the process, yeah. um, you have even a bigger pot of uh, sort of cash flow to make to service the debt. And did you, it's niche because I want to hit the next one, but but it is interesting. Did you feel like you had to get a discount that like they had to have a lower multiple than you as you build up your confidence for MA? Is it is it hard to pay up versus having to pay down? I did feel that way. Uh, <laughs> it just, uh, it, I, I don't mind having some room to make mistakes on execution along yeah. the way. And so, I, you know, you do look for, you know, today you get some companies who will tell me like, well, Henry, you're trading at this multiple, so why shouldn't we get that multiple? It's like, well, we should get higher. We should get higher. We're growing we even faster because we're more strategic. And, <laughs> and the truth is, like a lot of there's a lot of execution risk when you when you do M and A, and you have to be organized and focused. And um, and so, with leaving you some room to to um, you know slip somewhere is is a useful thing to have. Yeah, it's a good lesson for founders because it, it. I mean. From the other side, it's confusing, right? Why, like, like, like Zoom Info is great, but whatever, whatever you're trading at, you're growing. I don't know what you're growing at your public, but let's say you're growing 50%, 40, it doesn't matter, 60%. We're growing 40, yeah. 40%, 40 but, 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 but Henry, I'm growing 80%. <laughs> yeah. And so like, I deserve 40X ARR because I know, I know, I know, but like, I, it's not fair, Henry, just draw a line. Like, and you're, and, and if founders are in this, it's just, you just need to be aware of it, right? You just need to be aware of it. And um, it's, uh, and every situation's, I remember back in the day when Salesforce wanted to buy us in the beginning, the biggest acquisition they'd done was 16 million at the time. Wow, and they and they met with us, and they're like, "We really want to buy you, but like, sixteen would be too much." Uh, <laughs> then you look at Tableau and MuleSoft, right? And then you look yeah. at like Jeff Lawson at Twilio. He's like, "I'm not messing around. Like, I'm not buying an itty bitty mail company. I'm buying the best thing, SendGrid, yeah. and I don't care what it. Even though the multiple was a little was a little off, he's like going, and it, it's it's a it's a it's a spectrum, and companies evolve at different rates, right? You were kind of in the middle, I think, right? You didn't yeah, want to mess around. Yeah, I didn't. And I I think the way that like if I was you know, if I'm thinking in Jeff's shoes, one of the things that I'm thinking is like, when I bring this asset in, what am I able to do with my, with it when I put it in the product, when I give it access to my go-to-market team, how much faster can I grow it? 
where are the synergies from that perspective? And that was always really important. Actually, that takes us to, to mistake number three, which is not appreciating go-to-market as a strategic advantage. Yeah, what does and this mean? So this means like when we were doing, first, when we were doing M&A, when we were growing the business, I never thought of how valuable it was to have an incredibly efficient go-to-market engine. We have, and we have a go-to-market engine that drives a 10X LTV to CAC. Um, it does a 30-day, there's a 30-day average sales cycle. It's super efficient in generating leads and driving them through the pipeline with uh, automation. Um, and what I didn't appreciate was when you look at a business and you're like, what are the key assets in that business? If you, and if you're a founder or you're a senior executive at a company and you're thinking about your business and going, what are the strategic advantages to our business or uh, the strategic levers here? If go-to-market is just something you don't even think about uh, as part of that, that's a major mistake because go-to-market, how you generate leads and find new customers and upsell and grow your customer base, that is a major, can be a major strategic advantage for your business. And there's, it's so often that I see companies where you have two companies, their features and product are in parity. And one is just <laughs> running circles around the other one. Yeah. And when you see that happening, it's because one figured out go to market in a more precise, more efficient way. And that gives, a, gives them an incredible advantage along the way. But okay, so that, that's, I get that. I, that's what I've observed. But but how, what do you mean by leveraging that? You've got two companies, right? Both have the same product. Maybe even the slower growing one is is better, right? Sometimes that happens because they're inwardly focused. But one's figured out their go-to-market motion, right? But okay, if that's you and that's what you were, right? But what do you mean? How do you take that to the next level? Why was it a mistake? Uh, that's the piece, piece I'm missing. What, what, what's, the, what's the investment or the action you didn't take here when you had that advantage? So, uh, so along the way, when we were looking at acquisitions, especially yeah. when we were looking at acquisitions. Oh, bolted in. Both, yeah, and when you would look at an acquisition, you would go, oh, I have an opportunity to take what is a company that didn't focus on go-to-market as, um, as in such a focused way as we did. And if I can take this team of 20 sellers who are doing $10 million a year in ARR, what yeah. if I can take that team and make them do $20 million by just bringing in our go-to-market motion into that. Oh, on top, not, not get rid of them, which you would, you know, but actually just add your expertise to their team, take the same talent without training and tools and people and just leverage up their, their, leverage their up revenue per lead. Just increase yeah. their revenue per lead, right? Increase their revenue per lead from yeah. an M&A perspective. Internally, the way I think about it too is like, if you can make, go to market incredibly efficient, incredibly effective, then that gives you a strategic uh, advantage to be able to take dollars that you would be spending there and spend them in product and spend, that, spend them in account management and spend them um, in customer success and marketing. The more efficient you make your go to market motion, the more dollars you have to spend across the company. And I never really, I actually, when people would tell, people would say like, Hey, Zoom Info is a sales first company. And I'd be like, no, <laughs> like, no, we're a product first company. We're a customer first company. I hated hearing that. Uh, and it took a while to just I'm realize that's okay. Like that is a strategic advantage of the business. We shouldn't be embarrassed of it. Well, there's something really interesting you said, which I think goes against some typical Twitter advice, which is that. If you have an efficient go-to-market engine, right, the classic advice from VCs and others is 
pour gasoline on the fire, right? If you have an efficient, if you have 50 great reps, hire 500, right? Go, go raise 200 million. And, and you're saying an insight, which is what I believe philosophically, although I don't know if it works in the world, which is if you have an efficient engine, that means you can free up resources in other areas. It's a, it's a weapon, right? A weapon. Because if you're inefficient, you end up having to spend every nickel in sales and marketing, right? Every, yep. ev- it, it consumes, it's not just, it consumes all your oxygen. So you're saying if you're sales focused, but good, put the money elsewhere, right? Don't, don't give in to the fuel and the fire mentality necessarily. Yeah, and then, and then, by the way, if you're putting money elsewhere and you're making those investments in a smart way, that yeah. just should drive your ability to continue to invest in a disciplined way inside of your sales organization. So if I take the dollars from that strategic asset and I put it in other places, and then that's driving reinvest, that should drive reinvestment back into the sales team. Yeah, that makes sense. So this one we might have hit, and I like the fuel at the fire at the end. It's a, it's a, it's a good, good tie to the last thread. Yeah. Um, we might have hit this a little bit in the higher in the beginning, but what does this mean? Hesitation stopped you going even faster. Yes. So I think that uh, we did kind of hit this in the beginning, but I think the way that I think about this was we were always, we've always been a pretty high margin business. But one of the things that we didn't do is really think through prescriptively where should the margin in the business be and how should we trade how should we think about growth versus profitability? And what does the market actually um, prefer here? And instead of doing, and the reason why we didn't do that, I think, is we had like hesitation around like trusting where that investment would go to change the profile of the business. And so if today we're 40% growth and 47% margins, then saying like, hey, in the future, what is 60% growth and 30% margin look like. Um, it was tough to have that conversation along the way because we didn't trust that the dollars invested downstream would turn into that result. I got and it. So have being convicted about making those investments and how it changes the face of the business and trusting your ability to put the next dollar in marketing or put the next dollar in sales to have it grow. I think we got comfortable with who we were and how we were operating the business, and then didn't take risks on on that type of growth. So your whatever your own version of the rule of forty is, it took you a while to believe it at a gut level that that would work, yeah. right? That you I mean, could maintain that. Version right? of the rule of forty is like a rule of eighty today, <laughs> and but, um, but yeah, it was hard to it was hard to. But it's true. Whether it's 80, like it's hard. I didn't believe that was true. I thought that was a, a, a silly ism, right? The rule of 40 or 80. But if yeah. you have a well-oiled machine, it is true for a while at least, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. If you have a well-oiled yeah. machine, you should be able to like continue to invest and continue to grow in those areas. Um, and I think we were just not convicted that the additional dollar would would net, in, would net the same return. And there's particularly this moment where on the sales team, you go from, you, you start, you have to believe that it really is bodies in, bodies out, assuming quality, right? And yeah. you, it's hard, it's a tough transition because in the beginning you're like, Linda, Bob and Henry are so good. I just need more of them. <laughs> and yeah. then your, your sales leader's like, no, I need 40 reps and you don't believe it. You don't believe that it's capacity, but you're well, doing capacity planning for 2021 right now, right? You know, you need you know this how number many of reps. You need in 2021. I think one of the interesting things here is, um, I think a lot of people say, you hear a lot of people when you ask, what, why is your company successful? They yeah. say, well, it's because of the people. And early in the, in the, in the early days of Zoom Info, what I, I, I got really frustrated with that answer. So I'd be on a, on, a, on a webinar like this, 
And yeah. the CEO would say, hey, we're really successful because of the people. And I'd be like, oh, come on, you're really successful because of the product. It's got to be the sounded product. Like a, sounded like a platitude, right? You didn't it believe sounds it. Sounds like a platitude, totally. Yeah. But then I found myself often to that point saying like, man, if I had 10 of this guy or 20 of that guy or, or 30 of this woman, how much faster could I grow the business? And that's really just saying like growth of your business comes down to the people. Like if you can look in your business and I know everybody on this call can and say, if I had 10 more of him or 10 more of her, how this business would grow exponentially faster then you really do believe that talent drives your business growth. And that's an easy way to get to the core of what drives it is to go, if I clone this person 10 times, would the business grow faster? And if the answer to that question is yes, for any number of folks in your organization, then you really do believe talent is the driver to success. Yeah, that's a good insight. If there's someone I say, if I had 10 of her, I, I'm 100% confident. Then you got to find the VP to go find that person for you, yep. right? Can't be you going to your first point because you can't recruit 10 yourself. Yeah. Uh, but go find the VP to do it. Henry, this was amazing. This was one of my favorite sessions of all time. These are the these are the same mistakes we all make and keep making. But I think you've given us an incredible set of challenges to just make fewer of these mistakes, right? That's the trick, so. isn't it? Just yeah. just make a couple fewer and then we'll watch how much faster you grow. That's right. All right so this this was a ten. I'm sure everyone is is quietly applauding in cyberspace during this global sure. pandemic. Um, but I, I'm deeply appreciative for the time as as we all are. So thank you so much. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, everybody. Curious how you can grow your SaaS company while companies shift operations online? Show your customers how you can help them by changing your forms to tools with a simple personalized result page. Choose from over 1,000 templates at outgrow.co forward slash SaaS. That's outgrow.co forward slash S-A-A-S.